Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm Kelly Blahos, and I'm joined as always by Barbara Boland and Daniel Larison. We'll be talking today with Jason Palladino, an investigative journalist and researcher with the Project on Government Oversight. But first, we're going to talk about crashing into an issue that for many years has been the third rail of Washington politics, and that's Israel-Palestine. As of this recording, Israel and Gaza have agreed and implemented a ceasefire after Tel Aviv conducted several days of airstrikes on Gaza and Hamas launched thousands of largely ineffectual rockets into Israel. All of this started at the beginning of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan in April when Israel, Israeli police cut the cables to the call for prayer at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem. That combined with protests Six families being evacuated to make way for Israeli homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. They are made for a combustible atmosphere, which was made worse with the excessive force used by Israeli police in dispersing the protesters, including storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound with tear gas and stun grenades. In the end, over 221 Palestinians were killed in the airstrikes dozens of them children, and over a dozen Israelis died as of this recording. While much of the major violence is over, the fundamental issues that have led to it are still alive and well, despite the Biden administration taking credit for helping to bring the ceasefire about. We have seen this cycle of violence over and over again. But is there a change in the wind on Capitol Hill? Are Democrats tired of the same old blank check to Israel only to get continued instability there in the region in return. Is this really serving anyone's interest? So let's talk about this, Dan. Um, you know, what is the sense in Washington today about the U.S.-Israel relationship, and is it changing? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. It's, it's changing quite a lot. I mean, th this has been in the works uh, inside the Democratic Party now for many years, uh, especially as progressives have become more influential and, and more vocal on foreign policy issues. Uh, and, and as Israeli policies have uh, worsened over time, so that there's now recognition that Israeli policies, that Palestinians uh, reached the level of apartheid. Uh, and this is what uh, Human Rights Watch said in their report uh, that came out just before all of this started to happen. Uh, and it seemed like the Israeli government was going out of its way to prove their point uh, that, yes, in fact, this is an apartheid state. Um, and so what you're seeing is a, a tremendous amount of uh, activism and uh, and criticism coming out of the Democratic Party, uh, particularly from progressives, uh, saying in no uncertain terms, yes, Israel's an apartheid state, uh, we should stop uh, providing them with the assistance that they use to impose this system. Uh, and, and there's actually legislation uh, that's being introduced, uh, Representative McCollum uh, introduced a bill uh, that would put conditions on U.S. aid to ensure that uh, that aid is not going towards uh, any of the oppressive tactics used against Palestinians, uh, whether in the territories or in Israel itself. And so, and and uh, Senator Sanders introduced a, a resolution of disapproval on the arms sale that the Biden administration had approved earlier in May. And I, there may have been one of these before, but it's been a long time since I've ever seen one uh, where you actually have a resolution opposing an arms sale to Israel. Usually these things are automatic rubber stamped. There's, there's no question about it. And now you're seeing, uh, in part because of the response to the, the bombing of Gaza, but also because of the shift that's taken place over the last few years, uh, there, there is a, a tremendous amount of opposition now 
uh, to continuing to provide Israel with uh, basically a blank check uh, in the form of military assistance. And so it's a it, it's been a, a major shift. It's still not it's not a complete seismic uh, shift uh, towards majority opposition to this, but it, but it's definitely a very significant. Barbara, what say you? I don't know. I I have to uh, take issue. I think with some of those premises are play devil's advocate a bit here. So I know we usually agree on this show, but I'm going to introduce a little bit of debate here. I, I think that, A, I completely disagree with the use of the term apartheid state. And I think that a deeper dive into Ukraine in South Africa during apartheid would give you a clear, I, a much more um, nuanced vision of what's happening uh, in Israel that really doesn't allow for the use of apartheid. It's a bit like saying that the Nazis uh, are calling or comparing things to the Holocaust or the Nazis or Hitler. You know, it just kind of doesn't really add, I don't think, to the discussion. But moving on from that point, I also think that you know, when we have this discussion about whether Israel is using excessive force or responding correctly to Hamas, we also have to remember that Hamas is firing rockets over at Israel. And then in the U.S., we have the domestic political situation. And we also have Biden's State Department, it feels like, handling this in possibly the most hapless way I've ever seen a State Department spokesperson handle a situation where they seemed unprepared for questions about whether or not Israel and Palestine both had rights to self-defense, for instance. And then even the term self-defense, what would that mean? You know, it, it appeared that they were not prepared to go into that media room for the actual questions they were going to get asked, which is a bit surprising because the media and the Democrats and liberals and I think Americans are all talking about the, these issues. So everybody else is having the conversation. I'm not quite sure why the State Department seems to be a little bit so behind the eight ball. And I hope that's not indicative of where the Biden administration and the White House is on those issues, especially given I'm, I was pleased to see Congress, you know, stepping in and saying, hey, you know, so this is an American weapons you're going to be using so we can actually have say over what you use them for and whether we want to sell them at all. I actually personally don't think that American weapons should be dropped anywhere in the world other than by Americans for American uh, wars that were authorized by Congress. But that's my opinion. Obviously, uh, I don't think we've done that in several decades, actually, since World War II. So that's, well, that's then- all of my 50 cents for you. <laughs> yeah. And I think you bring up a really important point because I am not so sure what interest it is of ours in continuing to pay uh, for these or, you know, or in continually continuing to pay in the form of $3.8 billion a year only to see the peace process just lay dying at the side of the road. And instead you have these violent uh, responses to Hamas, you have this excessive force being used against protesters. You have the uh, the um, evacuation or eviction, rather, of Palestinians because the annexing of this territory keeps going on and pushing on and on and on. Now that these are 
fundamental differences between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but yet in the form of $3.8 billion a year, we are clearly putting our thumb on the scale of one side over the other. And I don't know why that, how that is in um, the, the best security that, interest of the United States. Historically, I believe, is because it was promised to Begin and Sadat in exchange for Egypt and Israel discontinuing their massive war. So because that stopped, uh, that was, you know, peace in the Middle East at the time. And I think I I wanted to actually look that up when this whole Congress deciding to not authorize this came up because I was curious to know, is this a deal in perpetuity? Because we give Egypt, a lot of people don't know this because we're always discussing the aid we give to Israel, but we also give billions to Egypt. Well, we give $1.5 billion to Egypt. We, That's the, a lot to give right. to a country. I mean, again, why are we funding anybody uh, weapons that we're not... Right. Well, I mean, the reason, I mean, the, you're correct that the, the regional, the original justification for this aid was to be a sort of a sweetener to guarantee peace between Egypt and Israel. Right. Uh, now, at this point, it's basically become uh, a gravy train for weapons manufacturers, right? Because we we send them the aid and then the aid gets turned around to buy the weapons we also, here. And, and we uh, may and also had a deal at some point also that we would give Israel uh, I forgot the term that was used. They're, they're supposed um, to have a qualitative, qualitative edge. military edge. Yeah. Right. So that uh, that gives our defense contractors even more money on top. So if we give, if they know if they get a deal with Egypt or a deal with Saudi Arabia, then Israel gets 10 times that or what or whatever a qualitative edge would be considered to mean. But it's definitely going to mean a lot more money. Yeah, absolutely. And it's. Uh, anyway, it's definitely it's, it's time said, to rethink all of this. I mean, it's God. The situation on the ground is nothing like what it was then. Israel was a tiny place at the time that didn't have any um, resources or financial resources of its own without our aid. Or then this was, and the thinking at the time was all based around the Cold War. We had to counter Russia, and again, you can question all of the premises of all of that, but. Leaving all that aside, we're not even remotely in the same situation right now. Right. And now Israel is a, a regional power uh, with, with superiority over all of the other states in the region. Uh, of course, they've had nuclear weapons now for to us. Uh, close, <laughs> I think, more more than 50 years now. And so they're they're completely secure. The, so it's, it's not necessary for their security to keep funneling this money to them, where we're essentially mm-hmm. subsidizing their military budget, which then allows them to develop their own weapons industry and sell to whom to whichever countries they want to sell them to. Uh, I, I think they, they even armed the government in Myanmar uh, to, to show you, uh, the, you know, sort of the, the ripple effects of destabilizing uh, consequences that this policy can have. And so it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I think Not it's, it's, it's outdated. Not to mention the conflict Iran, because that's too, that's also an outgrowth of Israel's insecurity or Israel's uh, Israel's inability or all of that region's inability to solve the problems that are neighborhood disputes 
are giving weapons and throwing weapons into that blender is not solving it. It's making it worse. And on the perceived fact that the U.S. is on the side of Israel and also neocons always throwing in, but we have to defend Israel because Iran is not helping solve Iran, the problem, our problems with Iran, and it's not helping solve Israel's and the Arab states' problems. Right. But well, it, you know, and, and it also we, we we forget, and I, you know, we don't want to be remiss in mentioning that while all of this is happening, while we are giving all this money to Israel unconditionally, they are turning around and meddling in our attempts at a detente with Iran. They have openly said they wanted to sabotage uh, our efforts to get back into the JCPOA, the Iran deal, and they have been assassinating Iranian scientists. They have. Uh, they had sabotaged the Nantan's uh, nuclear facility just recently, and so and threatened war. Uh, their officials have said there there may be war if if we get back into a quote unquote bad deal. So what are we getting out of this unconditional support? And I think we need to think back to Reagan, to H. W. Bush, even J George W. Bush did not see our aid and our political support for Israel as unconditional. They, they put more pressure on Israel to get its act together, to stop the settlements, to, to get to stay and pursue and earnest the peace plan, process than Obama did and, and, and that, than Obama, um, Biden currently is. I mean, it wasn't always the case that we thwarted and blocked UN Security Council condemnations of both Hamas and uh, Israel violence. Uh, George oh, W. No. helped like several of them go through, and he is he is he is considered one of the most warmongering presidents of the recent uh, history. But yet he put pressure, and his father put pressure on. Israel to stop expanding the settlements. Reagan put pressure and used aid as leverage to stop bombing Lebanon with cluster munitions. So this whole idea that we just give this blank check to Netanyahu to do whatever we want. You know, what Trump did was the most egregious because he basically acknowledged that we no longer care about the two-state solution. We will do everything to support Israel, which means moving the embassy, acknowledging their territorial rights over uh, the Golan Heights, uh, saying that the, the settlements weren't illegal. And so Biden gets into office and there's like, there is a festering cauldron going on, roiling cauldron going on that we saw blow up in the last month. I don't, I, I don't want to be remiss and not mention that Israel was also caught, Mossad, I believe, or the intelligence services were caught two years ago, spying on the White House here in Washington, D.C. There was literally zero blowback publicly for that. Did they lose any weapons contracts for that? So unfortunately, if there is some kind of pressure that's put on Israel, it's not visible. And so therefore, it's more or less right. not useful from, a firm, from the type of foreign policy that we're discussing, because we don't really discuss like the secret negotiations that we're going to hear about 50 years from now. But I mean, it's unthinkable. Could you imagine if any other country in the world was caught spying on White House communications. It's unbelievable. It still boggles my mind. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but you can look it up. It's reported in Politico. It's true. And 
what happened? Nothing. They've never said, we're still selling them weapons. So we're basically still helping them to spy on us. Right. We should just tell them what we're doing. I guess that's what they would say. You can just tell, you can just give us your express deliveries straight, straight away. Well, let, let's <laughs> give Dan the last word before we wrap up. And well, so all, all that underscores the, the sort of the absurdity of this idea of having no daylight with these clients uh, where you're not allowed to criticize them. You're not allowed to pressure them. Uh, you, you have to essentially give them whatever they like whenever they want it. And if you don't, then you have somehow, somehow betrayed them. Uh, th- this is a, a very warped mentality. We, I mean, we see it with the Saudis and with other clients as well. But with Israel, it's, it's been an absolute uh, recurring problem uh, now for, for decades. And that's, that's why I'm encouraged by some of these signs of dissent coming out of Congress. Uh, that, of are, life. <laughs> that, are, that are much louder than we've heard uh, in a long time. We are excited to welcome Jason Palladino, a national security investigative reporter at Project on Government Oversight. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, NBC News, Huffington Post, The Virginia Pilot, and more. His investigation into a troubled Navy and Marine Corps helicopter program led to the grounding of the fleet and won a variety of top national journalism honors across broadcast and print. And that reporting laid the foundation for a documentary film called Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn, which screened at film festivals nationwide. Uh, welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. You wrote a piece back in 2018 in The Atlantic called The Navy's Terrible Accident Record is Now Hidden from Public View. And in it, you wrote, Amid a dramatic five-year spike in aviation accidents, the Navy has put aviation safety data that used to be public behind a wall. And you ran into this change um, while researching for the documentary film Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn. So I'm curious to know how exactly that came about. Did the information that you were looking for, was it originally public and then removed from the public domain? Did the, was the Navy responding to basically an embarrassing story by hiding the data? Can you tell yeah. me? Yeah, so what, what, what I found really, I mean, the reason I, I decided to write that piece was because I, at this point, over the, over the years of this investigation that eventually led to the documentary film, I would say that my relationship with, with the Navy and Navy public affairs um, sort of got worse and worse uh, as I started asking more and more questions. And... Um, that data disappearing from the safety center website was just sort of a bridge too far for me. Um, basically what happened is data that I relied on to make the initial determinations about, uh, the safety of a various, you know, aircraft compared to other aircraft was just gone one day. I mean, I went to the Naval safety center website and it had just disappeared. And I thought, man, if, if, if this had happened, you know, three years ago, I would never have even been able to make early on determinations in this investigation by comparing uh, crash rates um, uh, and, and you know, being able to compare aircraft to aircraft, being able to look at specific incidents and what happened. And when I reached out to the, to the Navy, um, their answer to me was, oh, nothing's been removed. There's just been a website redesign. 
And I said, well, you know, there's whole categories of, of information that were once public that are no longer public. And, you know, basically said, oh, well, they're still there on the website. You just need to have a DOD common access card to access that data. And I said, okay, so effectively they've been removed from the public. And what I did is I, I said, I, I sent in a FOIA to try to find any discussion documents, emails about this change, which, you know, I consider a pretty major change. And they came back to me and said, we did, we don't, you know, we couldn't find anything. Um, we, you know, which means that this was all the basis of, of in-person discussions. And what's crazy about this is that if, if you go to the, the Air Force's uh, safety center's website, you get tons of data, really well presented, going back years. I mean, they do a great job. And so then my, you know, the question becomes for the Navy, do you have some operational security concern for this mishap data that the Air Force uh, doesn't have? Or is it just that, you know, you're hiding this because it, it led to investigations that, that were embarrassing for you? Uh, and I haven't, you know, I, they didn't provide me a good answer to that, um, which, which inspired that piece. Uh, and, you know, since th this is actually something I'm really passionate about is, is um, data disappearing from government websites. We see it happening all over the place. And the scary thing is that nobody's really keeping track. There was a project uh, some years ago, I think the Sunshine or Sunlight Foundation was yeah. doing something on this, but uh, the project fizzled out. Um, and thank God for Wayback Machine run by the Internet Archive, because, you know, I don't know if a lot of these these folks designing these government websites or making these changes are aware, but, you know, there is a, there is a system that is taking snapshots almost daily of a lot of these government websites. So you are able to at least see how things used to look. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other big example of this was, was troop numbers. Um, DMDC, the data, uh, uh, defense data, manpower data center, um, they would produce quarterly numbers of troops deployed in, in various countries around the world, and as well as contractors deployed, civilians, um, broken out by country. And it was a really useful tool for journalists. The data was delayed, I want to say three or four months, um, which, you know, should remove any security concerns. It's not like you were getting a live snapshot of, of what troops were doing in, in, you know, in each country. Well, Tara Kopp, uh, uh, a reporter, a def great defense reporter, she uh, one day went to check this site and found out that um, in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, the entries were just blank, even historically, even in the historical records, everything was removed. And there was a little asterisk. And if you go to the bottom of the page, the asterisk said, oh, if you need these numbers, please contact uh, the office of the Secretary of Defense. And they just stopped giving out the numbers. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote about that. Um, and we ended up actually uh, uh, sending in a FOIA lawsuit about the decision to remove those numbers. This was done under Mattis. And um, we ended up suing and uh, we, we ended up getting the numbers that were missing. So in that case, a lawsuit resolved this. But again, your average you know, FOIA requester isn't going to have the resources to sue to get this information. So... Um, yeah, this is something that I'm always looking for more examples of. Um, uh, and unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of um, sort of this slow uh, removal of information off of government websites. Now, did they actually 
post this information, the deployment information back on the website, or do you only have it because you FOIA'd it? No, we only have it because we FOIA'd it. It was, it was just security has, has made it public. Um, uh, and so, you know, you can fill in the blanks, but um, it's unclear at this point what um, the Biden uh, DOD is going to do in this regard. Um, I mean, I think there's a really good argument that uh, because uh, Afghanistan, for instance, is such a big issue in getting out of Afghanistan, there should at least be some way for the public to sort of be checking in on, you know, the numbers. Are the numbers actually going down? Um, You know, the basis for our FOIA lawsuit was that the Trump administration had made this a campaign issue. I mean, they were, you know, he was he was really selling this getting out of out of these these wars and, and bringing troops home. Um, but if you actually look at the numbers, uh, if we had those numbers at the time, you would have been able to have uh, reporters saying, well, actually, these numbers show that these numbers, you know, this hasn't changed at all. And you're claiming we've we've gotten out. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, I mean, it, it, you know, again, it the answer that you hear from the, the DOD is that there's there's operational security concerns. I would argue that that, you know, knowing a total number of troops mm-hmm within an, a vast amount of land, such as Afghanistan or Iraq, the Taliban or ISIS or whoever is not going to be able to use that strategically, especially when it's delayed by three or four months. Well, especially also when the president himself is telegraphing or saying we only have X number. So all we're really <laughs> asking is, is that number true or right. is it not? The other interesting yeah. thing I think in your article is that you point out that these numbers were available for at least a decade prior. So throughout the entire waging of the war, in, or at least half of it, most of the time that we've been using the internet um, as journalists, they had this information readily available. And I think actually that it was a big Obama uh, administration push to have that stuff available on the internet as a result of these different sunlight um, laws. But it's interesting that now that, you know, just it, it, it struck me reading your piece that right as the debate was heating up about en- ending the endless wars, that's exactly when the information disappears online so that you can't really verify whether or not it's true. And what it looked like after you did get the numbers was that in some cases they shuffled people from maybe one country to maybe slightly like another Gulf state or nearby, but they're, they're not, it's not as if we lowered the overall deployment or anything like that. It's just like, Oh, maybe we'll, well, maybe we take 2000 guys out of here and stick them over here. But it's like shuffling people around on a risk board. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's super interesting. And, and actually I haven't made this, this, I mean, you, anyone can go into Pacer and find this. I haven't written about it yet, but I think I, I, I plan to, um, this became such a contentious issue in our FOIA lawsuit. Um, that we, we've got a deputy undersecretary defense, for defense who, who filed the declaration in our case, which is pretty unusual, um, basically writing a long declaration about why the justifications for keeping these numbers secret was itself classified. So, <laughs> I mean, which is mind-boggling levels of, of secrecy. I mean, basically saying that, oh, we can't even tell you why. I mean, it's, it's, it's nutty stuff. And this declaration, it's, it's a fascinating declaration. Um, uh, and, and I, you know, I should make a bigger deal. Maybe I'll post it on Twitter or something when this, uh, when yeah. this comes out. But it's really interesting to just see um, uh, the, the levels of secrecy. And, and you know, it, 
if you're interested in this kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, uh, Steve Aftergood at Feder- Federation for American Scientists has, he has a really great newsletter. Overclassification is such a huge issue. And, and you're right. Oftentimes, at least in my opinion, it, it really comes down to avoiding embarrassment. Um, the, the, the reaction, it's very easy to say that there are operational security concerns here. Um, it's much more difficult to actually articulate what those national, you know, what those concerns are. And I, th- I would not at all be surprised if the removal for, uh, of the like safety data came in response to all of these reporters suddenly looking at, wow, there sure are a lot of, uh, Navy aircraft crashing, um, and so it's, it's too easy for them to do this. And, and I encourage people to push back on it. Hi, Jason. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, speaking of uh, accidents in the Navy uh, and embarrassments for the Navy, uh, the Seventh Fleet in particular has suffered a number of high profile embarrassments and controversies over the last few years from the, the ship collisions that took two destroyers out of action to the, the big COVID outbreak on the Theodore Roosevelt that made such big headlines last year. And you, you wrote about that COVID outbreak uh, at the time. Are the problems in the Seventh Fleet typical of the Navy as a whole, uh, and if so, how can they be remedied? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I mean, I mean, the, the, there there is something rotten in the Navy, and and I think that that you know, just just look at the Air Force and the Army. Um, look at, for instance, GAO open recommendations. I mean, I'm trying to find a, a measure of at least you know. Uh, some measure that we can look at numbers that have to do with accountability. The Navy has by far the most open recommendations and that includes, you know, Navy and Marine Corps. Um, If you just look at the number of high profile scandals, that doesn't even come close. I mean, the Navy, if we want to talk about the fat Leonard scandal, I don't know if your audience is aware, but just Google fat Leonard because (laughs) I don't know how this hasn't been made into like a major HBO multi-part series, Um, but it is wild. I mean, we're talking bribery, prostitutes, expensive cars, uh, and vast sums of money wasted. Um, So, you know, the, the big question that, that I, have not found the answer to, I think I have theories, but as to why, why, why does it appear that the Navy is so much more scandal prone, um, than these other services? Uh, I think some of it has to do with the fact that if it, let's just look since 2017, does anybody want to guess how many acting or, uh, confirmed Navy secretaries there have been since 2017? It's like five or something, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's, yeah, it's more. It's, it's almost, oh, more. I think it's eight. Yeah, at this point. <laughs> so, I think I mean, five might be the Army because they had a, quite a few too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's bad. And, and, and you know, it, with no consistency in the leadership, um, uh, I, think, I think things are totally in flux. I think people get taken out by scandals. Um, you know, uh, I think that um, there is a, a culture in the Navy that, is not great. I mean, if you look at the Fat Leonard scandal, uh, scandal again, there is a leadership culture that, uh, you know, basically there's a lot of finger pointing downwards um, when these things happen. Uh, I mean, Captain Crozier on the on the Theodore Roosevelt, but there's very little accountability for, for the high level people. In rare cases that you do get accountability, I mean, you know, in Fat Leonard, I think you've got over 20 senior Navy officials who have pled guilty, but I mean, that's an extreme case talking to the guys on the ground, talking to maintainers, talking to pilots, they describe a culture 
where the people with good moral compasses who are willing to uh, say, stop the flight line, we're doing things illegally, we are putting people at risk, uh, the current culture is that those people get punished. Now, if those people get punished, you can assume that the people who are sort of promoted and do well are kind of the like, you know, brown noser, just go along to get along, keep your mouth shut. Um, and, and if you get decades of that culture, who's running these, these commands? It's, it's not the best people. Um, I mean, you're, you, you know, you, you should absolutely be rewarding the people who are willing to take a stand, uh, you know, especially when it comes to things like, like safety. In the documentary film, uh, Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn, uh, one of our main characters is a guy, Chris Hummy, who was a helicopter mechanic, who after watching a friend of his, a, a uh, you know, a whole, well, multiple friends, a whole um, crew of this aircraft uh, die in, in this crash, he basically said, no more. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna basically cobble together um, this aircraft anymore. I'm not gonna be doing illegal maintenance. I'm going to put my foot down and demand that we have the tools we need to do this right. And what did they do? They watched him like a hawk. They waited till the moment that his shoelace was untied or tied improperly. Uh, and they fired him. Um, and, and, and that is something that is typical. I mean, you, you can, I hear this story again and again and again, and, and I frequently get people reaching out with very similar stories. You take a moral stand uh, on something like safety and suddenly you've got a target on your back. Absolutely. Well, we saw that uh, very clearly in the, in the case of Captain Crozier, where he was removed from, from command because he spoke up about the terrible conditions aboard his carrier right. uh, because of the COVID outbreak and, and that the Navy wasn't acting quickly enough in his judgment uh, to, to remedy that. Um, and and uh, he was uh, removed by the then uh, Secretary of the Navy, Modley, uh, in, in a, a kind of an unusual move for, oh, for the, the optics the of that were to, incredible yeah. too. I mean, you had, you had these videos coming out of the, you know, the, the crew chanting the captain's name as he, as he left right. uh, while we're hearing from the Navy leadership that this guy's like insubordinate or irresponsible. And it's just like, God, I mean, just, there's a level of, of, uh, sort of, they're just so tone deaf. I mean, it's yes. really amazing. It's really, really, yeah, really oblivious. Uh, what what effect do you think Crozier's removal has had on whistleblowing in the Navy? Has it has it made the, the culture even worse than it already was? Oh, I mean, I th I think it sends quite a message. Uh, you know, I uh, something that that we've been focusing on a lot at at Pogo is making sure that there are these safe channels for whistleblowers. Um, and uh, what we keep hearing is there's this big problem with. With, I mean, the, the inspectors general are not taken very seriously by a lot of like lower level folks. And the reason for that is, um, so you're a, let's say mid-level uh, maintenance staff on one of these ships. You're watching some very sketchy business happen. You report it to your command level IG. So, or let's say you go all the way up to the DOD IG. You go up to the biggest one, you go to their hotline, what often happens is the DODIG, which is getting lots of these complaints, will forward that, that um, complaint to your command level IG. Well, the command level IG isn't actually an IG. They're called IGs, but their loyalties, the way the system's currently set up, are often to the commander of that group. 
So there's this huge conflict of interest here where, where uh, because you've got this person with a title IG, um, but is still in the chain of command, um, oftentimes you'll hear people tell, tell stories of feeling like they were outed by their IG, which is you know outed to the leadership. And then what happens? Again, they wait until you screw up or they find something in your background and, and you know, the squeaky wheel gets, gets moved out. So it's, it's, it's really bad. I mean, and, and you can just look at some of the numbers, uh, look at the numbers of, um, of, of complaints that are, that are actually um, fully investigated and found to be legitimate by DODIG. Tiny, tiny, tiny percentages um, are actually found to be justified. Um, now is that's not to say that every single thing reported to the DODIG is, 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 you know, is worthy of a massive investigation, but many, I believe are, and the current numbers, when you've got, you know, 5% clearance rates, uh, it's no wonder that, that people are afraid. Uh, and yeah, high profile things like, you know, Captain Crozier, uh, being fired for what it, what it appears to be doing everything he should have, he could have been doing. Um, that sends a terrible message. Hi, Jason. It's Kelly. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, you know, just in that vein, you would recently in March had written a piece about the Naval Audit Service, which is supposed to be independently uh, providing oversight to naval operations, but it looks like the Navy is systematically defunding it. Is, can you talk a little bit, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but can you talk a little bit about how this plays into this overall culture of inaccountability in the Navy? Yeah, so this, this uh, is something that the, the more I learned about it, the more disturbing it, it becomes. Um, and I've also learned a lot in this research about what this, this group does. So, so each, each uh, military um, service has its own internal auditor. So this is not the same thing as you might hear this, you know, stories of the, the effort to audit the, the Pentagon. Um, this is not that, but this is an important accountability body within each of these um, military branches. So for instance, these are the people that are at the direction of the service secretaries are going in and doing unannounced visits to uh, audit, let's say, a maintenance facility, um, audit a defense contract, um, going in and, and, you know, testing out the passwords on, on for instance, uh, you know, uh, sensitive systems on ships, um, cybersecurity audits, those types of things, important work. Well, we started hearing from, from people within the Naval Audit Service that there was a plan being floated to slash their budget by 70%. For context, um, the army and the, uh, so the army audit agency has 500 personnel. The air force audit agency has 640 personnel. Even before these cuts, the naval audit agency, which has a bigger budget um, than each of those services, only had 290 personnel and a 70% cut would get them down to 80 personnel. Wow. Um, and that's, that's uh, basically just by announcing the cut, they've already lost dozens of people because, you know, if they're, these people want to get out, they've got, they've got, you know, potentially kids to feed and, and they want to find another gig. Um, and so there's already been a huge damage done by just the, this cut being floated. 
Um, the crazy thing about this, that the really mind-boggling Pentagon logic here is they're cutting this, this organization, they're, you know, a budget of 45 million bucks in order to pay for the Navy shipbuilding effort. So this is why this doesn't make sense. This is an organization that exists to save money. And if you look at the, the amount of, of uh, uh, savings that this organization finds, it more than pays for itself. Um, I mean, I think uh, in just one year, the Naval Audit Agency, uh, a Naval Audit Service found uh, over a billion dollars of savings just in, in you know, a gear that was sitting around that could be put to better use. And so the logic behind cutting the, the organization that saves you money um, in order to pay for something very risky like shipbuilding, and, and you want to talk uh, uh, huge projects, this shipbuilding effort is going to be massive and cost lots of money. So uh, it, it's really yeah. not to save money. They're deliberately shrinking the office because they don't want the accountability. And I know Absolutely. that sounds cynical, but when you look it's at- not. It's honestly not cynical. Yeah. It's, that's exactly it, what's happening here. Because they found the savings and they don't want that. Uh, they had the the, thir the high, third highest ranking position in the Pentagon was the chief management officer. It was created by Congress to actually do all the things that you're talking about with, at the Navy level, but at the, the Pentagon level. And that person, the first guy was kneecapped and forced out. And the second uh, person to hold that position, Lisa Hirschman, was out of a job when they passed the NDAA and it found that they just got rid of the position. So you figure, wow, you create a position so that you could save money and have better accountability and budgeting at the Pentagon. And then they don't like it when these people actually start coming up with savings because it just like cuts into their, their deals with the contractors and what have Absolutely. you. And, um, and, 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 but then they come up with some disingenuous <laughs> rationale for defunding or getting rid of it by saying, well, this is saving money and that's crap. Yeah. Well, and it's even, it's even more insidious. Uh, and, and I would just want to say it's not, that is not a cynical analysis at all. That is exactly what's happening here. And, and to, to sort of the, another sort of insidious layer here is that, um, you know, there's, there's a huge portion of defense contracts that are service contracts. So the, you know, the, these are, these are not paying for material goods necessarily, but these paying people to do things. Now, the big four accounting firms have their eyes on the Pentagon because there is a boatload of money to be made in auditing contracts. And what I have learned is that there is a contract basically, um, for one of the big four accounting firms to basically take over some of the duties of the Naval Audit Service. Um, a POGO investigation uh, about 10 years ago found that on average, uh, when you contract out these sort of inherently governmental things, you end up paying three times as much. Um, and which, you know, kind of throws a wrench in the savings. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it could be here that that what, what Thomas Harker, who's the current acting Navy Secretary is doing is, is basically trying to steer money towards one of these big four accounting firms. He comes from one of these accounting firms. Um, that was his, his gig before. And I wouldn't be, you know, too surprised if, uh, you know, very soon here when he's out, if he lands at another one of those uh, accounting firms, um, which sort of gets into the revolving door issues we've talked, talked about. Um, 
but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a kind of a disaster. I mean, you're, you're losing right now. The Navy is losing decades and decades and decades of institutional knowledge. I mean, people who've been at the Naval audit service for 30 years who are leaving because they don't think they're going to have a job in, in 10 years. And, and we, you know, we've had a little bit of luck getting, um, you know, representatives and members of Congress interested in this, um, because, you know, this was not done with congressional approval. This is, this is one guy unilaterally deciding to ax a pretty important accountability measure in, in the military service that is the most fraud prone. I imagine also, I noticed you just mentioned how this affects the recruitment or retention of people in the IG's office, but it definitely also has an effect on the Navy overall because the just dealing with the service where this, you have to deal with this kind of attitude and culture constantly, and also knowing that your command doesn't have your back or might turn you, uh, turn you over to the IG or to the IG that's working for your command, that's not going to lead to um, a a service that has that keeps its people around, which ultimately means that at the end of the day, are we going to have senior service members in the Navy who know what they're doing, who've been there for long for a long time, who actually know the ropes, or are they constantly looking for new people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely a personnel issue. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's important when you're talking about Pentagon reform to always bring it back to the people. Because uh, these are, you know, ultimately, th- that's what's important here. And um, uh, this stuff definitely affects retention. I mean, uh, I have talked to so many like young people who go into military service, specifically the Navy or Marine Corps, and they are, you know, passionate about what they do and they come out of it so disillusioned. Um, and, and usually it's because of these types of, uh, these types of things happening where, where you're, you know, um, you're finding that your career is, is butting up against your conscience. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's sad to see. I mean, you get a lot of really bright, really inspired people who go into the services, even still they're you know, they're having retention problems, but the people I met when shooting the documentary, um, they were passionate about what they were doing. You know, um, they just weren't set up for success. Thank you for coming on, Jason. We really appreciated having you. Um, I would definitely encourage our listeners to look for your work because he's been looking into a lot of these issues and continuing to file FOIAs and finding out a lot of interesting things that the DOD doesn't want you to see. Thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been great. I, I, uh, you know, maybe we can, I can come on again and be less of a downer, but (laughs) (laughs) we'll look forward to that. Definitely. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Jason. Jason. Thanks. again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.